0: Amen. Uh, There's really no better song to introduce our scripture this morning. Our God is the ancient of days. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. But our God is always sovereign, always on the throne. Nothing can change his plan. Nothing can get the universe off course to where God is making it go, wanting it to go. No evil ruler, no... Evil president, no evil king, no evil empire. I was reading a report this last week about the, the war that's going on in Ukraine and reading about how there were soldiers, Ukraine soldiers who were going around that were finding these mass burial graves and finding that their own countrymen had been tortured before they had been executed. We look around at the world, we see vicious rulers. We see in history awful, evil, wicked rulers. And I think one of the questions that we are meant to ask when we come to those empires, we come to those dictators and we say, God, how are we to think about their sin? How are we to think about why you are allowing this to happen and what you're going to do about it? That's a question I ask myself a lot. As I read through history, I think, God, why aren't you stepping in? Why aren't you stopping? Why are you allowing? Why are you letting it continue? And when will you, and what will you do when you do it, end this? How are we to think about the sin that we see in others, especially leaders and kings? How are we to think about the sin that we see in ourselves? We saw last week Belshazzar's just high-handed rebellion against God, and we realized, yes, ours doesn't look that externally bad, but internally we're doing the exact same thing in our sin. And so in Daniel chapter 5, it's been about 70 years that God's people have been in captivity and exile in Babylon and they're asking those same questions. Wicked rulers that reign over us, evil empires. God, when are you going to step in and how will you do it? And the answer is in one night, one of the mightiest empires in the world will fall. Because of God's sovereign control, because God enabled this to happen, God allowed it to happen, God orchestrated it, it happened. He even prophesied that it would happen to save his people, and to bring them safely home. We began last week by looking in Daniel chapter 5 at four very crucial lessons when it comes to God's sovereign control over kings and empires, over political rulers, over our sinful hearts. And we saw last Lord's Day that God sees our sin when we mock his glory. He sees it. We can be high-handed in our rebellion against God, but God sees it. The defiance of Yahweh our God. No government, no matter how defiant their leadership might be, is beyond God and his sovereign control. Number two, we saw that God confronts our sins. And we should tremble when he does, just as Belshazzar trembled when God confronted his sin with the writing on the wall. We ended our time last week in verse 16, Daniel chapter 5. So if you have your copy of God's word, go ahead and turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. And we will read the remainder of this chapter as we study verses 17 through verse 31, and we finish seeing the final two aspects of God's sovereign control and how he's going to deal not only with Belshazzar, but with his entire empire and how he deals with our sin as a whole. Daniel chapter 5, verse 17, then Daniel answered the king and said, let your gifts remain with you, give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the writing to the king, and I will make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted the kingdom, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all of the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue feared and were in dread before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished he kept alive. Whomever he wished he raised up. Whomever he wished he made low. But when his heart was raised up and his spirit became so strong that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne. His glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from the sons of men and his heart was made like that of beasts. And his place of habitation was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of the sky until he knew that the Most High God is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and that he sets it up over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not made your heart lowly, even though you knew all this. But you raised yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They've brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or know. But the God in whose hand is your very life breath and all of your ways, you have not honored him. Then the hand was sent from him, and this writing was inscribed. Now this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, uh, you have been weighed on the scales and you have been found lacking. And Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar said the word and they clothed Daniel with purple. They put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he would now be the third powerful ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Father, we come to a section of scripture that We know, uh, some of us know very well, some of us are familiar with the the handwriting on the wall, we are aware of what is taking place. And in our familiarity with this passage, we, we can forget that it applies to us, we can forget the awesome nature of what Belshazzar is experiencing, is what all of us must experience if we are to be saved. Father, I pray that we would be taken into this palace, that we would, we would see the writing on the wall, that we would experience and understand, and just with our, with our sanctified imagination, that we would see as if we were there just yesterday, watching all of this take place, watching Daniel stand and interpret and preach. And God, I pray that we would not be like Belshazzar, remains unaffected by this message. There's no repentance, there's no sorrow, there's no brokenness. God, make us affected. May we be broken as we see you weighing us, numbering us, and finding us lacking. And may you point us to Jesus, who is the only hope that we have, of forgiveness, of pardon, of Salvation of any hope in this life whatsoever, it's only through Christ. So, Father, you are you're bigger than we possibly comprehend. Make us to know and to see, enlarge in our understanding of who you are, and make us feel way smaller than we think we are. We have way too high an estimation of our sovereignty and too low an estimation of yours. So flip those around, Father. Make us aware of your sovereignty in a way that would change the way we live our lives today. Make us aware of our frailty, our brokenness, our humanity, even as we've been studying in Ecclesiastes, that this life is a vapor and you can so easily just move us on into eternity. Prepare us now for that moment. Holy Spirit, open our eyes now to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The third reality about God's sovereign control that we are going to see this morning, we saw number one, last week God sees our sin when we mock his glory. Number two, God confronts our sin and we should tremble when he does. Number three, God exposes our sin and we are always found wanting. God exposes our sin. He uncovers it. He unveils it. And every time he does that, we are always found wanting. Wanting, lacking. This is verses 17 through 28. No matter how powerful or protected we might be, no matter how wicked we are, no matter how much we would try to defend ourselves, no one is beyond God's verdict, and every single human will be laid bare before him. Verse 17, this is Daniel's response to King Belshazzar. Daniel answered before the king, And he says, let your gifts remain with you. Remember the king said, I'll give you a purple robe. I'll give you gold. I'll make you third highest in the kingdom. We know why he's third highest. Nabonidus, who is Belshazzar's dad, is the guy who's king over all of Babylon. And Nabonidus had moved 500 miles away. And so he left Belshazzar, his son, to kind of set up shop as a co-regent in Babylon. So Nabonidus is number one. Belshazzar is number two. Daniel would be number three. I'll give you third place in the kingdom. And Daniel says, I I don't want that. I don't need that. Keep your gifts. I don't think he's being rude here. I think what he's saying is, I'm going to tell you the the meaning. I'm going to give you what this means and explain it and interpret it for you. But I want you to know I'm not doing that for your gifts. My, My interpretation of your prophecies is not for sale. That's what he's saying. And so, verse 18, he's going to make the interpretation known. Verse 17, he says, I will... Read the writing to you and make the interpretation known. By the way, just as an aside, that's a perfect description of preaching. Good expository preaching is preaching that reads the writing and makes the interpretation known. That's what expositional preaching is. It's just saying whatever the point of the text is, that's the point of the sermon. And here's what it means. Let's read it. Here's what it says. What does it mean by what it says? And what does that meaning mean for us? That's good preaching. And so he's going to preach. Before he predicts, he's going to preach. He doesn't just want to spit out the meaning to Belshazzar. He wants Belshazzar to understand the point of what All of this is happening for why this is taking place. This is so gracious of God. uh, Belshazzar is wondering what's happening. Daniel could easily just say, here's what's happening and move on. But he's explaining why it's happening. This is why these things are happening. So often, I think as parents, we want to play that card, you know, do something. Okay, why should I do it? Because I said so. Just do it because I told you. And I understand the heart behind that. But I think we should be patient with our kids and try to explain it. I know that there's defiance on their part and rebellion in their heart for sure. But I think there should be uh, rules that come with what we're saying, motivation that comes with the rules. Even God's doing that here. I don't want to just tell you what's happening, I want to tell you why it's happening. And so Daniel begins. Verse 18. O king, the most high God granted the kingdom, grant your glory and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. That's his grandfather. Remember, there's no Aramaic word for grandfather, so just father just can mean any ancestor. He says, you, Belshazzar, you were given. Your your grandfather was given. This was given. You didn't get this for yourself. You didn't grab onto this for yourself. It was given. And you know the story that we saw in chapter 4. Because of Nebuchadnezzar thinking that he got it for himself, by my strength, for my glory. Remember, that was the, the slogan of pride, by and for, by my power, for my glory. Because Nebuchadnezzar had done that, Daniel's recounting what happened to him in Daniel chapter 4. When his heart was raised up, verse 20, his spirit became so strong he be- behaved arrogantly. So his glory was taken away. Now, the events of chapter 4 that we studied a-, a while ago happened 30 years before this night. Belshazzar would have been about 14 years old when the events of chapter 4 happened, when Nebuchadnezzar became that crazy you know, beast man. So, Belshazzar would have been a teenager when his grandfather went through those experiences. Uh, There's evidence that Belshazzar served as chief officer in the administration of Neriglisar, who uh, reigned after Nebuchadnezzar, just two years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. And Nabonidus, who was an official in Nebuchadnezzar's administration, Nabonidus is Belshazzar's dad. So Belshazzar would have been around what was going on in Babylon at the time. So what Daniel is saying is, let me remind you of what happened to your grandfather that you already know. I'm not giving you new information. You already know this. He says that in verse 22. Even though you already know what happened to your grandfather, that as he was so prideful and so arrogant, God stripped him of all of his glory, yet you have not made your heart lowly, even though you knew all this. Even though you knew all this. What Daniel's going to do is he's going to bring three charges, and they're really God's charges against Belshazzar. He's going to bring three charges against Belshazzar. He's going to say, here are the three reasons why you are being judged tonight. Reason number one, your willful disobedience. You knew this, and you still did this. You knew God exalts the humble, but wars against the proud. You knew this, but you still did this anyway. And this is so instructive for you and for me. The problem that we have is not a problem of lack of knowledge. The problem that we have is rebellion in our hearts against the knowledge that we already have. Dale Ralph Davis writes, having clear information does not guarantee the right response. Having clear information doesn't guarantee the right response. We live in a day, as one commentator writes, where the social elite assures us that the information fallacy is true. If there's a problem with human behavior, it's because there's a lack of education. Popular culture is built on this one basic assumption. Education produces transformation. If we have a a problem in society, we just need to educate people, and then that problem will go away. That's the information fallacy. If we just educate people, they'll be better. But this passage is telling us it's not an information problem. It's an affection problem. Men love the darkness rather than the light. So yes, we need truth. For sure, we need information. But just because you're given information doesn't mean you're going to change. That's why we shouldn't put our hope in the giving of that information. Even as our brother Adonis shared this morning, as we go out and we share the gospel, the hope is not in, I shared the gospel clearly, compellingly, compassionately. Therefore, that person who heard it must get saved. no. Because they can get the information, they can understand, and they still might reject it. Why? Because it's not just an information problem, it's an affection problem. We see this in the book of James. The demons know who God is. The demons probably have a better knowledge based theology than you and I do. They know that God is the only one true God. They know that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, they know that Jesus is the only way to be saved. But knowledge doesn't save them. No, they hate that knowledge. Whereas you and I, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know the same thing demons do, but you love those things. Belshazzar's problem was not ignorance. It was insolence. My question to us this morning is, what information do you know to be true that you are not living according to? You know this information to be true, but you, like Belshazzar, are acting contrary to what you know to be true. Willful disobedience is the first charge that Daniel brings against Belshazzar. The second charge is deliberate defiance. Verse 23, you raised yourself up against the Lord. You raised yourself up. You deliberately defied God. And you remember how he did that. You took out out of the treasury, out of the temple treasury, what your grandfather had taken out when you were exiled or you're exiling the uh, Jews. You took those vessels of gold and silver and and in doing so, you were saying Yahweh has no hold on us. We have hold on him. We're better than him. We're in control of him. Thirdly, you are arrogant in your disrespect towards God. The third charge that Daniel is giving to Belshazzar, not only willful disobedience, not only deliberate defiance, but also arrogant disrespect toward God. At the end of verse 23, he says, you have not honored him You've not honored him. So here's his message. Belshazzar says, The Most High gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom and authority and glory. Nebuchadnezzar became arrogant. God brought him down. You, Belshazzar, are just like Nebuchadnezzar, and you should have known better. And since you did not act accordingly, you will be judged. That's the message in a nutshell. And at the end of that message, now that he's given him the motivation, verse 24, he gives the interpretation of what these words on the wall mean. And uh, just by way of reminder... This massive palace, we know exactly where this palace is. We unearthed this palace in an archaeological dig that happened in the middle 1800s, and we we know this palace. In fact, there's a little niche in this palace where the king would have sat, and it's paved with just an alabaster uh, wall around it, a plaster wall around it. It's a white plastered wall around it, just like the Bible describes, a perfect place where uh, God's hand could have written these words and been seen because it's opposite the lampstand, so the lamps would have been shining on it. And you, king, just think of yourself in the place of Belshazzar, sitting there enjoying this feast, drunk, and just parting your heart out and saying, I'm better than Yahweh, and drinking all of the, from these vessels and putting them on the table and saying, I'm better, and then all of a sudden you see that one person looking not at your face but above your head. And they have this, this look of just uh, 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 like they've seen a ghost, right? They just, there is something wrong happening behind you. And, and so you start to turn and you see the writing that's on the wall. And you see these letters and you see these words that are being written. And you stop and you think, what does this mean? Now you remember, Belshazzar brought in the wise men who didn't know what it meant. Maybe they did know uh, and they didn't want to say it. Also, they could have been confused, they could have been confused. What's being written behind them, mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin, and ufarsin, the the U in farsin is uh, the Aramaic and, so you could just say mene, mene, tekel, farsin, because U is the and. Maybe they're seeing those words and they know exactly what they mean, but they don't want to say what they mean. That's possible. Also, in Aramaic, as in Hebrew, there are not. Vowels put into the words. It's just consonants. So my name would be written P-T-R-C-K, no A and I. And if you see that in context, you know what it is. So it sounds confusing, but if you have no context, if you just have three random words thrown on the wall, it's a little bit harder to see because you don't have vowels. Could be that. Jewish tradition says that uh, instead of it being written right to left, like normal Hebrew or Aramaic would be written, that it was written top to bottom, that it was written up, you know, upside down kind of in a top to bottom instead of right to left. Maybe it was written that way. I think a better understanding of why this is confusing to the wise men is not necessarily the words or the, the letters, but how they can be taken. Again, because there's no context, if you take these words to be nouns, here's what they mean. Mene is from the... Aramaic word mina, which is a coin. Tekel is from another Aramaic word for another kind of coin. And ufarsin, or just farsin, is a word for half a coin. So if these are all nouns, it would be, in our vernacular, penny, penny, dime, nickel. That's it. So you can tell, if these are nouns, which there's no context for what these are, you can tell that would be a little strange to see those words. These can also be passive participles. They could be the passive participles coming from the verbs instead of the nouns. So if you read these words as verbs, it wouldn't be coin, many would be numbered. Many would be numbered or counted. If you read it as uh, tekel as a passive participle, it wouldn't be coin, it would be weighed. Uh, Another word for this word is a, a word for light. So weighed or light. And finally with farsen, if it's not going to be half a coin as a noun, as a, pa- as a passive participle, it would be destruction or division. So not divided as in half of something, but destroyed, uh, d- uh, a division that happens that destroys you. And I believe that that's what it is because that's what Daniel says. So I think that the wise men may have thought, well, this is speaking about money. Are we going to get rich? I don't know. I don't want to make a bad prophecy about we're going to get rich and then we're going to die. I don't know. The Persians are right outside of our gate. They're waiting to destroy us. So they just step back and say, we don't know. Daniel comes in and says, I know. My God wrote those words. I can tell you exactly what they mean. Number one, Mene, numbered, counted. God has declared, Belshazzar, that your number is up. You've been counted. You have been found deficient, and your time is at an end. Tekel, you've been weighed. This is like God putting Belshazzar on one side of a scale, and everything that he was supposed to do on the other side, and him getting thrown off. Again, a variation on this word means light. So Belshazzar is so light on this scale, he's not heavy with a sense of righteousness and humility, he's light with pride and immorality and he's thrown off. It's like all of God's moral laws are put on one side of the scales and the king's wickedness is put on the other side and Belshazzar has not measured up. Tharson uh, comes from the word Perez, which you can see in verse 28. Perez uh, it's destruction or division that leads to a destruction. It's not just having something, uh, it's destroying it. It's completely destroying, not mathematical division, but completely destroyed. And there's a play on words even inside, and you can kind of hear it, Perez uh, or or Farsin, these two words. Perez is a word for Persia, and Farsin, if you speak Persian language, is Farsi. So Farsin, Farsi, you can even hear, there's a play on words inside of this word that the Persians are outside and they're going to be the ones to destroy you. So Perez means destruction, but the Persians are going to destroy you. So it really couldn't be clearer. Belshazzar, God has seen your sin and he's exposed it and he has found that you are wanting, you're lacking, you do not have enough to remain as king and your kingdom is over. This is why I say the third lesson that we see about God's sovereignty is he always exposes our sin And we are always found wanting when he does. Try as you might to cover it, he's going to expose it. He's in the business of doing that. So try as you might to cover your sin, he's going to rip it out and open it so that everyone sees it. And that's why we say a lot, it's better for you to do that on your own initiative and to walk in the light and expose your own deeds. Or else God will do it for you and he will always find you wanting. That leads to a fourth and final lesson that we've looked at in chapter 5. And today, number three, God exposes our sin and we're found wanting. Number four, finally, God deals with unrepentant sin with appropriate judgment. God deals with unrepentant sin with appropriate judgment. This is verses 29 through 31. After giving the explanation of these three words, verse 29, Belshazzar says the word. And they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issue a proclamation concerning him that he would now be the third powerful ruler in the kingdom. So my question is just, why does Belshazzar do this? There's no uh, sense in this text that Belshazzar is repentant. So why does he do this? Well, there's a number of reasons why people think that he might. And I'll just give you a few. You might think of other ones. Maybe... Belshazzar's just wanting to honor his word, kind of like a Herod situation. You remember Herod with John the Baptist? Herod doesn't want to kill John the Baptist, but because he said in front of all of his party guests, I will give you whatever you ask for, and when the request is kill John the Baptist, I have to do it to save face in front of my party. Maybe that's why Belshazzar's doing it. I know he's not happy about doing this. He doesn't want to do this. Maybe he's honoring the word. Some people think he's actually honoring the word that he made. I don't think so, because why would he all of a sudden become some upstanding citizen, right? He wouldn't just all of a sudden turn and be like, hey, I'm going to give you your glory that you're due. No, I I think he's still wicked at at heart. Some think that Belshazzar is trying to appease Daniel's God. But again, there's no clear evidence that Belshazzar repents. So I don't think this is an, uh, an attempt at repentance. Some think that Belshazzar is saying, hey, if we are going to be destroyed, if we're going down, remember, this guy's drunk out of his mind, so if we're going down, I want you going down with us, right? Let me make you a part of our government so that when they come in and they ask, where's the king? I go, that's me, and this is my uh, right-hand guy. Maybe he's just laughing as he does this. Maybe this is all sarcastic. Maybe, I, I believe it's probably this one, that Belshazzar is saying, that's the word, Those are the the phrases, those are the words that your God chose to do this miracle and write. Do you not remember we are Babylon? Do you not remember that we have over 20 years supply of food here and we have the Euphrates River just running right into the middle of our city? There's no way Persia's going to outlast us. Do whatever they want. They try to get through our walls, they can't get through our walls. We have two walls and then we have six walls, so there's no way they can get through I think he's mocking. Okay, if that's what your God said, fine. Here's your stuff. I think he's laughing as he's doing this. And as he's doing this, he gives the stuff to Daniel. Puts it on, cloak, the little purple robe, the necklace, and says, you're third in command. Maybe a little scepter, maybe a little third in command ring or something. I just think the irony of this is palpable. Daniel had been sent to the retirement home by the men who were in power. God brings him out of retirement and makes him third ruler over the entire world. No one is more powerful after Nabonidus and Belshazzar than a Jewish slave. So as Belshazzar's laughing this all off with sarcasm, I think our God, Psalm chapter 2, sits in... ...throned in heaven and mocks and laughs at those who are mocking him. There's no way that you can rise up against God. Daniel's ascendancy in the Babylonian empire was very short-lived. It's like getting a promotion the day before the company that you work for goes bankrupt, right? Hooray, I got the promotion and the next day we're we're not a company anymore... His reign as prime minister probably lasts about 15 minutes as Belshazzar is killed that night. And in my mind's eye, in my sanctified imagination, I see this so clearly. I see the irony of everything that's happening here because Daniel, remember, he's about 80 years old, so he just, he wants to take a nap, right? He just, why am I here? I know what's going to happen. A new government's coming in. A new king's coming in. Can I just go home? I want to take a nap. But of course, they're parading around him with the purple robe and the gold necklace, and I think he's just standing there. Go ahead and do your stuff because I know what's about to happen. So they give him the gold. They give him the purple jacket, and he's just standing there. And I, in my mind, as they're doing that Belshazzar is killed, right? And Darius the Mede comes in, and the Persians take over. And I just see Daniel as he's given all the stuff. I just see him in, you know, a minute and a half after just taking off, going, "Here you go, thanks for the new kingdom. Come on in and sit down as the new empire reigning and ruling." Like he's just done, right? He's had it with being under these wicked, evil rulers and these wicked empires. And then I think he goes home and takes a nap, and uh, he's going to enjoy that nap for a little while before he takes another nap in a den of lions, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next Sunday. Babylon's going to fall the very night that he's brought up as the powerful ruler in the kingdom. Verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. We're told how this happens. It's actually a very interesting story. Uh, The Greek historians Herodotus and Xenophon Um, who both wrote very close to this time. Herodotus wrote in the 5th century BC and Xenophon wrote 400s, 300s BC. They give us a lot of specific detail about that night. And here's, in short, here's what happened. Remember, Persia's outside. Persia's encircled. Persia's probably already taking care of Nabonidus. They already got him either uh, captured or killed. And now they circle Babylon. And Babylon has been feasting this night because they think there's no way they're going to get to us. The Persians picked that very night because they knew this was a festival to the gods of Babylon and therefore they're going to be drunk, they're going to be distracted, we can take over this very night. And what they did is they dug a canal right next to the Euphrates River. They knew we can't get through the walls. Two massive outer walls, six smaller but still big inner walls. So they knew we can't get through with catapults. So what they did is they dug a a big canal next to the Euphrates River and then they waited until this night. And this night they uh, made a little hole in that uh, Euphrates River entrance to their canal. They dammed up the Euphrates River and they siphoned it off to this canal so that the Euphrates River level went all the way down. It was just a little bit of sludge at the bottom of the river. And then they followed that riverbed into the entrance of Babylon. So they couldn't get into it because it was this massive canal filled with water. But if they dam up that water and they redirect it somewhere, now they can just waltz right in. And they did. And it's very interesting because we're also told by these Greek historians that as they went in, they went past those two outer walls, and then they went into a couple of those inner walls, and there's a big wall with a big uh, door. There's an iron gate and then a bronze gate. And that bronze gate, shockingly, they found it as they were going in. They thought, what are we going to do about the bronze gate? And when they walked in, the bronze gate was wide open. And nobody really knows why. There are questions as to why that is. One... Answer that's given is the Babylonians had gotten so tired of Nabonidus being gone and Belshazzar being just a jerk of a king that they decided, you know what, let's open this up and get a new king in here and a new empire. We're done with Babylon. But I think that there's a, a biblical reason for why those bronze gates were open. The Persians just waltz right in. Turn to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. This is... Hundreds of years before the events of Daniel chapter 5. In Isaiah 45, verse 1, thus says Yahweh to Cyrus. That's Darius the Mede. We'll talk about this next week, why he has these two names. I think one's a title, one's his actual name. This is the king that's going to come in and destroy Babylon. This is the Persian king who's going to come in that very night, the guy who's 62 years old and rule and reign in Belshazzar's place. Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed, his chosen, the guy that God has chosen to do this work, whom I have taken hold of by his right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you, Cyrus, and I will make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. They had an iron gate that was wide open. They had a bronze gate that was wide open. Why? Because God said it was going to be. Hundreds of years before this event happened, God said, I'll open the doors for you, Cyrus, so that you can waltz right in. And shortly after they waltzed right in, Belshazzar was executed. Uh, Xenophon tells us that the Persian soldiers were directed to the palace by Babylonians. That's where uh, the king is. Go there. And specifically, one god by the name of uh, Gabrius, who we talked briefly about him last week. Gabrius had a son, and his son was killed by Belshazzar uh, in a malicious act during a, a hunting trip. And Gabrius says, I'll take you right to the king. Follow me. So Gabrias takes the Persians right into the palace. The Greek historians tell us that they found uh, Belshazzar with a dagger in hand ready to kill himself. They subdued him and then they executed him in the palace. And after that, we're told there wasn't much bloodshed. After that, it was a pretty peaceful takeover. The king is dead, go ahead, take over the empire. Xenophon writes as he concludes his historical account, they avenged themselves upon the wicked king, Belshazzar. So even a historian who is not a believer is saying this man was a wicked king. Usually God's judgment comes gradually, but on this occasion, God's judgment came like a lightning bolt from heaven. You're done. You're gone. Proverbs 29, verse 1 says, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22 through 26. How long, O foolish ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers will delight themselves in scoffing, and fools will hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you, because I called you and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. You neglected all of my counsel. You did not want my reproof. Then I also will laugh at your calamity, and I will mock you when your dread comes." That's what's happening to Belshazzar at the end of Daniel 5. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Belshazzar is perhaps the supreme Old Testament parallel to the rich fool in Jesus' parable. Having already given expression to their lust for more, in the case of the rich fool, it's lust for more money, they will never be satisfied without more. Blinded by the pursuit of that lust, they were oblivious to the possibility that, quote, this very night, your soul will be required of you. And whose will those things be? which you have worked so hard to acquire. Proverbs 6, verses 12 through 15 say, a worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devise evil and spread strife. Therefore, their calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, they will be broken beyond healing. That's what happens to Belshazzar. And Darius, in verse 31, is set up as the new king at the age of 62. There are days in the life of every person, nation, empire, a few days that change the course of life as you know it and life as the world knows it. And you can mark it down. October twelfth, 539 B.C. was one of those days when in one night, Belshazzar the king of Babylon is killed And Persia begins to rule and to reign. And Daniel writes, remember, he could have written many things, but he writes for this specific purpose for us to know that on a day when literally the world is turned upside down, when the world's greatest city is under siege, when the world's most powerful ruler is executed, when one empire crumbles in the matter of moments, That God is sovereign on his throne and accomplishing his perfect, all-wise plan. God exposes our sin and we are found wanting. God deals with our unrepentant sin with appropriate judgment. That's Daniel chapter 5. My question is, what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do? Three concluding points that I think would be helpful for us to take away with application. Number one, this chapter, I believe, is meant by Daniel to give us great comfort. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, these words written in Daniel chapter 5 are given to us to give us comfort. God is always in control. Whether it's December 7th, 1941, whether it's 9-11 that we remembered last week, whatever the day may be where life just stands still, God is still on his throne. And this should shape your view of politics. This should shape your view of the government. Remember, you're not on some runaway train to an uncertain and unsure future. No one and nothing is out of God's hands. Don't put your hope in the earthly kingdoms around you because no earthly empire will endure. Put your hope in Hebrews chapter 12 where it says that we are longing for a kingdom that will never be shaken. This should bring us great comfort. Secondly, this should bring us great conviction. This should bring us great conviction. King Belshazzar was numbered, weighed, and found wanting by God. And the reality biblically is that God does that with every single one of us. God takes our heart and puts it on the scales, numbers us, weighs us, and finds that we are lacking. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3, boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him all actions are weighed. All of our actions are weighed. Proverbs 21, 2: Every man's way is right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the heart. He's the one that determines, was that a right action or a wrong action? Proverbs 24, 12. If you say, see, we do not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? He knows and he will render accordingly. Just like with Belshazzar, God has numbered, weighed, and found all of us Lacking, wanting. So, this should bring great conviction. Don't presume on God's patience. Maybe today is the day that God will perform some Belshazzar act in your life and say, Enough's enough. But we see this in the New Testament. God does this even with his own kids, with believers. Enough's enough. I'm taking you home. Don't presume on God's patience. Even in this life, your actions could bring immediate judgment. Don't presume on God's patience even to the very end. This is why in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The ending will come quickly. Your ending individually will come quickly, and the ending will come quickly. So don't presume on God's patience. This should bring massive conviction, because again, like we said last week, though Belshazzar's sin was so massively heinous and external, Our sin is just as vile and wicked. It's just not seen as readily, but it's internal. This passage should bring massive comfort, massive conviction, which should lead finally to Christ. It should lead us to Christ. This text should lead us to Christ. Because the reality is, all of us stand just like Belshazzar right now with the handwriting on the wall saying, You're not enough. You're not enough. Try as you might. You're not enough. You don't measure up. You don't don't have enough morality in you to make you acceptable before the God who is perfect, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of all the earth. We're not enough. I know that that's a hard thing to hear, something that goes against the grain of our culture where everyone gets a trophy for participating in anything. You did a great job. You're enough. No, you lost. Try harder. (laughs) But we've all been weighed and we're weighed on the scales on the balance of God's perfection. This is why by the way, when you ask people, do you think that you're going to get to heaven or if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you why should you get into heaven? Why should I let you into heaven? Most often the answer is because I'm a good person. The reason why they say that is because they are judging themselves. If God is our judge, we would never say that. That's why we so often want to judge ourselves because when we judge ourselves, we can put whatever we want on the other side of the scale. We have our morality, which we all say is bad, but then we put Hitler on the other side and we go, well, we're better than that. That's why we want to be our own judge. But this passage says God is the judge. So God takes those scales and puts our heart on one side and puts his perfect morality, his perfection, his character, his attributes, everything that he is... And you know that that's just going to throw us off to the other side. So try as we might, we're never going to be perfect. We can all admit that. We've all felt guilty. We've all felt our conscience say that was wrong. We shouldn't have done that. So we can never become perfect again. And that's exactly where the Bible wants us to be. Don't try. Just give up. Just quit and say, I can't do it. And that will lead you to Christ. That's the bankruptcy in soul that we've been talking about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew chapter 5. They get the kingdom. Why? Because they come to Jesus not saying, look at who I am and what I have to offer. They come to Jesus saying, I have nothing. Will you please save me? I am nothing. I have been numbered. I have been weighed. I have been found wanting. And I need your perfection. Because the reality is Jesus Christ, he was numbered. He was weighed. And he was found lacking nothing perfect in his obedience, perfect in attitude, action, in thought, in word, in deed, perfection. And God says of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm perfectly pleased. Everything he does satisfies me. Therefore, we can look to the one who has been weighed, numbered, and has never lacked once for one nanosecond, and say, can I get that record? I have failed I have an an F minus in living life. Can I take the A plus that Jesus has won for me? And if we do that, the scriptures say, salvation comes to you, desperate, needy, broken, saying, I need you, Jesus. And he says, I would gladly give you that perfection. So that not only now on the scales are we numbered, weighed, and... There's nothing bad that's on that other side. There's nothing bad that we have to account for. It's been taken away. It's been removed. It's been forgiven at the cross. But more than that, as if that's not enough, more than that, we've been given everything. We've been given perfection. So not only does it now not look like we didn't do anything wrong, it now looks like we have done everything right because of Jesus. This text should bring comfort, conviction, And should point us to Jesus right now. So let's go to him. Father thank you so much for sending your son. Who is our only hope. In life and in death. He is our satisfaction. He is our everything. And so we want to praise him now. Through song. To admit everything that we're seeing in this text. To own the realities of our sinfulness. And to throw ourselves at the mercy of Christ. And and to give thanks For the reality that he has given himself for us. So, therefore, not to us, not to us, O Lord, be the glory, but to your name and your name alone, King of kings, the Lord of lords, the uncreated one, who we have rebelled against, but you have sought us out and won for us our salvation. Receive our praises from grateful hearts as we sing.